Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Insane Level members Tam Jam, Isoke, Nick G, Cassie LMM and the Worry Clan, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Awesome A, Jen S, Ryan F, and Asshole. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deed and Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge with Ate by his side come hot from hell shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry hell and let slip the dogs of war. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gaines. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. And, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. What is up, unfuckers? Love and respect to Tom McGovern once again for adding to our ever-growing selection of intro music. I cannot say enough about his talent and how much of a delight he is to work with. He also provided us with a theme to our new periodic segment that dropped this week called Topical Cream. Okay, ew. 99 and I are on the record here that the name is disgusting. Oh, whatever. If you didn't get a chance, it's short and sweet by design, and we'll be dropping them in the feed when the spirit moves us, and just to kind of spice things up a bit. Thank you to our new and existing members for continuing to show your love and financial support to the show and to all those who reached out to let us know that they've donated to Jessica Cisneros' primary campaign in Texas to help unseat Democratic douche nozzle Henry Cuellar. So today is special because it's another collaboration, this time with a devoted listener, an early unfucker named Kryn Gabbard. He's known to many of you as Cringy, an insane level supporter of the show, but that's just the tip of it. Crin has an undergrad degree from U Chicago, we won't hold that against him, and a couple of graduate degrees from Indiana University. He is a wealth of cultural knowledge from music to literature, and he was a professor in both. And he's also the author of three books related to film. So I dipped into his magic well of information to help with this episode that examines some of the mythology surrounding Hollywood's leftist leanings. It's another example of the power of this unfucking network. From Elena in Mexico and Maria in Puerto Rico weighing in on our consensus episodes, to Rafe Raff down under for helping us prep our Aussie episode, to Bobby McDee in Ireland curating a fellowship of artists, our friends in Outagami providing the needed context for the upcoming Senate race, and Crin now offering his expertise in film, we have already successfully cultivated an international network of smart motherfuckers. You're a smart motherfucker, that's right. So that brings us to the unfucking at hand. This one has been on my mind for a while, and for many different reasons. As you can tell by the episode length, this is a long one. 
I'm going to take my time setting it up, too, because it's a departure from our normal unfuckings that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is more of me working through something with you out loud. So it might come off as a bit indulgent or meandering, but I'm kind of hoping that conclusions will occur to us together along the way as we work through it. Chapter 1. Hollywood doesn't fit neatly in any box. So one of the very first ideas that I jotted down before we launched the show was to understand our culture's fascination with the comic book universe. So I'm sure there's a, a good deal of critical writing on this subject, though I haven't really explored any of it as of yet, because my working thesis is that it represents somewhat of a, a cool detachment from reality escapism through violent fantasy that assuages that guilty pleasure dopamine center of our brains where good can defeat evil violently, it sort of lets us off the hook because we can get our rocks off rooting for surrogate heroes in fake worlds that aren't conflicted or weighed down by the messiness of real life. My idea was to put the American psyche on trial somehow to figure out how this appealed to some deeper psychological place that manifested itself in our identity. Figures like Iron Man, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, or Captain America seemed pretty blunt and obvious, rather than darker and more complex characters like Batman or Wolverine. But they each say something about us, the audience. By the way, I know the comic purists are already freaking out that I would so casually mix the Marvel and DC universes, so apologies there. It's okay, because that's pretty much the extent of the discussion on comic book characters, because this line of thought and subsequent research actually led me down a different path. See, Hollywood follows trends, and when it hits on a successful theme or genre, it's notorious for overexposing it and bludgeoning it to death. Now, in this way, the success of Spider-Man and the Dark Knight series turned Hollywood's attention to the massive potential of this genre that has pretty much dominated the box office returns for the past 20 years. That very first Spidey film is officially two decades old. Turns out there's a name for this. It's called Wave Theory. One of the primary resources that I'm pulling from today is a book titled Here's Looking at You, Hollywood Film and Politics by Ernest Giglio. In it, the author describes Vietnam War films, quote, in terms of marketing saturation or wave theory analysis, where Hollywood releases a batch of films within a concentrated time span. So as an example, the film industry dealt with Vietnam in two distinct waves that differed in tone and messaging as the country worked through the conflict and began to see it differently with some distance between the end of the war and the release of the waves. So in the first wave, between 78 and 79, you had films like Apocalypse Now, The Boys in Company C, Deer Hunter, and Coming Home. These were mostly dark and contemplative films that sought to work through the psychological toll that the war took on those who served. Giglio notes that, quote, the films of the second wave, 85 to 89, are more explicitly critical of the war and symbolize greater cynicism about American involvement, end quote. These were films like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill, Casualties of War, and Born on the Fourth of July. So instead of continuing down the comic universe path, Giglio, and other sources I'll bring into the discussion soon, kind of scratched a different itch in my brain it occurred to me that a few things didn't square in my understanding of the American psyche with respect to our nationalism, militarism, and jingoism. So I went further back to examine the influence of Hollywood and our obsession with war in this country. It turns out, it's really complicated. Somewhere along the way, my brain broke into pieces because of all of the conflicting messages. Hollywood is a bunch of leftist liberal elites. There have been five Rambo movies grossing more than 800 million total. 
Hollywood's take on Vietnam was instrumental in turning the tide in this country against a bloated military. Yet today, our approved military budget for 2022 is about 800 billion, or a thousand Rambos. Almost no war film has ever glorified the Vietnam War, yet Hollywood was responsible for rehabilitating our view of soldiers and veterans. Some films were made with funding and support of the government, others the government tried to censor. Successful anti-establishment films like All the President's Men, Network, and Serpico thrived in an era of distrust and rebellion. John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. visited Elon Musk to help model the Tony Stark character. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason I can point is, uh, you're welcome, For I what? guess. Because I'm your nuclear deterrent. It's working. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. What more do you want? For now. I tried to play ball with these ass clowns. F*** you, Mr. Stark. F*** you, buddy. So I wound up in this uncomfortable yet familiar place. The same place I am when conservatives ask how I feel about Joe Biden, Barack Obama, or Bill Clinton. I dislike them as well, but for very different reasons. That's how I feel about Hollywood. I view it with disdain, as most conservatives do, but not because I think it's filled with liberal elites. Rather, it's filled with classical liberals who think that they're doing the Lord's work while taking money from conservatives to fund their ambitions and doing more to promote a culture of nationalism. Hollywood is far from the liberal elite in this country. In fact, it's quite the opposite. UNFTR. UNFTR is also brought to you by Insane Level members Sam C., our friend Cringy, Cindy S., Corey S., Nathan E., Michelle H., W. Jeremy D., Eric Wagner 101, and Rob Nasby. Chapter 2. A Deep History of Influence To be specific, we're going to be talking about war films primarily. And I want to be clear up front that there is a vast library of art films and documentaries that do an extraordinary job detailing the horrors of war and would have a demonstrable impact were they more widely viewed. But we're focusing on high-profile, high-grossing films that move culture and impact policy. There are also what I'll call war-adjacent movies, like Taxi Driver as a PTSD film, Indiana Jones and Inglorious Bastards that provide fictionalized accounts of World War II, or nuclear fallout fiction such as War Games or Dr. Strangelove. These films do tell us something important about American culture and theoretically move our narrative forward, but we're going to be concerning ourselves more with classic combat and combat training films, including the suddenly relevant again, G.I. Jane. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth! We're actually not going to talk about G.I. Jane, but to set the table for what it is that films, war films in particular, are attempting to accomplish from the studio or Hollywood's perspective writ large, let's hear from our buddy Crin. People like us prefer films that make powerful statements against war and for peace. We also want our films to be progressive in terms of race, gender, sexuality, social justice. But Hollywood filmmakers are cautious. Unless they want to turn out an art film or something else for a niche audience, producers, directors, and screenwriters try very hard not to alienate audiences. 
And if anything is typical of the American film industry today, it's that constant effort to crank out blockbusters that somehow manage to please everyone. As a result, filmmakers often try to control how audiences actually think about their films. So, for example, in 1971, when Edmund North accepted the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for his work on Patton, the film about World War II General George Patton, North acknowledged that Patton was a war film, but then he added that he hoped it was also a peace film, which was kind of a stretch. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to America. Then there is what the film theorist Robert B. Ray has called the discrepancy between intent and effect. Audiences may see films in ways that in no way were the filmmakers contemplating. Patton is a really good starting point for us because it does paint a picture of audience perspective. The biases that one brings to the film likely impact your interpretation of it regardless of the director's intent. What makes Patton such a haunting example isn't necessarily the audience reaction to the film. Whether you viewed Patton as a hero or a fool, in this case, there's a chilling historical policy connection to the film as it's been widely reported that Nixon made the decision to engage in the secret bombing campaign of Cambodia after a private screening of Patton in the White House. In this instance, we don't have to guess at the direct impact of film on one's psyche because in this case, it is particularly responsible for the actions of a single individual wielding life and death authority. Now to again broaden our perspective and build on Crin's thoughts about what connects with the audience, I want to reference a book called Camera Politica. I'm going to talk more about it as we go, but here goes. Quote, Cultural representations not only give shape to psychological dispositions, they also play an important role in determining how social reality will be constructed, that is, what figures and boundaries will prevail in the shaping of social life and social institutions, end quote. So let's think about that and go all the way back to the beginning of Hollywood and film production so we can find even more direct and disturbing connections. I'll give you one domestic and one foreign to illustrate the power of film as pure propaganda. Recall from a prior episode that the very first film ever screened at the White House was for known racist Woodrow Wilson. D.W. Griffith's horrific film, Birth of a Nation, which glorified white nationalism and a little group called the KKK. In many ways, this film had as profound an effect on the national psyche regarding racism as Lenny Riefenstahl's pro-Nazi film, Triumph of the Will. Though separated by many years, both were considered masterpieces of filmmaking and were used to deliberately shift the public's mindset and view. And they were massively successful. So now let's go back to Giglio to flesh this out even further. Quote, speculating on the factors that motivate the policies of political leads is far different from documenting the influence of films on social and political behavior. This issue was raised as early as the beginning of the last century when the lynching of blacks increased after showings of the birth of a nation. 
Did the film's release incite mob violence? Was the film a recruiting tool for the Klan? The research suggests a possible relationship, but not enough to prove causality. This issue of cause-effect has plagued Hollywood since the 30s, when publication of the Pain Fund studies, which linked juvenile delinquency to the Hollywood crime and gangster films of that era, served as a catalyst for establishing tougher regulations on motion pictures, end quote. It's interesting that we're still having these kinds of conversations. Not every situation is as black and white as Nixon getting a hard-on and jerking off to Patton before systematically murdering hundreds of thousands of innocent people. The chicken-and-egg question of whether Hollywood portrayals influence or reflect culture is similar to the conversations we're still having about rap music or gaming culture. Frankly, there's more to suggest that it's the egg. Or is it the chicken? Fuck it. There's more than enough to suggest that it was understood early on that deliberately leveraging film as cultural propaganda was a way to sell policy and shift attitudes. Woodrow Wilson himself appointed a man named George Creel to basically run a film propaganda department to, quote, sell the war to America, after Wilson went back on his isolationist campaign promise and decided to enter World War I. Even still, during this period, Giglio notes that early Hollywood was conflicted, saying, quote, films like J. Stuart Blackton's Battle Cry of Peace, 1915, and Thomas Ince's Civilization, 1916, canceled each other out, preaching warmongering and pacifism, respectively, end quote. Wilson's experience and success in selling the American public on the war even led FDR to establish the Bureau of Motion Picture to help guide the film industry as a contributor to the Second World War effort. That's not to say that Hollywood didn't or doesn't have a conscience. In fact, arguably the most powerful man in Hollywood, Charlie Chaplin, used his power and platform to both satirize dictators and send a powerful message of hope and peace. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. So if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god, and fuck off, okay? Chapter 3. Hollywood Goes to War. When we talk about war films, there are a few categories in movies that cross over between them. Giglio categorizes Hollywood portrayals in two ways, the quote, pro-war, propagandistic, patriotic, flag-waving tracts, and anti-war stories aimed at changing the hearts and minds of combatants and civilians, end quote. He does, however, note that the genre, quote, encompasses several subcategories, including those about the horror and heartbreak of combat, and then those about the effects of war on the home front and society, end quote. With more than 5,000 war films under its belt in the first 100 years of Hollywood filmmaking, which is a staggering number when you think about it, 
there will obviously be exceptions, outliers, and many different approaches. Although, as we'll work through later, there is one glaringly consistent fact about nearly all of them. So that we can level set on the multitude of war treatments, I've listed just a small set of the highest performing and more recent films that are more familiar to today's audiences. The ones that have likely had the largest impact on you and on us in the past several decades. There are the disillusionment films that aren't necessarily combat-centric, like Jarhead, Coming Home, The China Syndrome, In the Valley of Allah, Lions for Lambs, Brothers, Green Zone, and The Hurt Locker. There's too many locks. There's too many. I can't do it. I do. I can't get it off. I'm sorry, okay? You understand? I'm sorry. Look over here. You hear me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry! Get down! Now! I can help you! This last one, a harrowing film by Catherine Bigelow and starring Jeremy Renner, was notable on a number of fronts. First, it took a different look at war from the perspective of soldiers tasked with disarming improvised explosive devices. It was directed by a woman, and it took home six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. While it ultimately only grossed about $50 million, it was considered by many to be an important anti-war film, but one that also portrayed the struggle of American soldiers male soldiers in particular, in both a gut-twisting and sympathetic light. A difficult line for any filmmaker to navigate. I have a more recent example of a filmmaker trying to control how people think about her films. I'm thinking here of Catherine Bigelow, who directed The Hurt Locker, uh, the 2008 film about American soldiers in Iraq defusing explosives. I was actually at a screening of The Hurt Locker when Bigelow came out afterwards for a Q&A. Someone asked her if her film was a critique of masculinity. She started giggling and smiling and suddenly seemed almost girlish as she effectively ducked the question. I'm guessing she did not want her film to be seen as the work of an angry feminist, her fist raised in the air, going after the behavior of men, especially the behavior of American men fighting a war. Being a female war filmmaker in a male-dominated genre and industry put Hurt Locker under many different microscopes. Some combat veterans were critical of the depictions and technical inaccuracies, but believed that the setting was extremely authentic. Overall, most critics fell over themselves applauding the film. And I wonder, to Crin's clip there, if the question posed during the Q&A that he referenced would have been posed to a male director. Nevertheless, Hurt Locker stands out as a great example of Hollywood's effort to portray disillusionment and frustration with war, in this case, the war in Iraq. To counter this type of narrative, there are what I'll call the war-affirming films, whether or not that was truly the intent. These are usually big sweeping affairs such as Pearl Harbor, Bridge Over the River Kwai, Patton, The Great Escape, Uncommon Valor, We Were Soldiers, Heartbreak Ridge, Hacksaw Ridge, or Black Hawk Down. War-adjacent and slightly different stories could include things like Private Benjamin, Stripes, Officer and Gentleman, Taps, and The Great Santini. These are more character-driven stories where troubled protagonists find redemption through military discipline not explicitly glorifying war, but certainly part of the affirming aspect of the genre. 
Even films like those in the Rambo series speak to the horrors of war and what it does to a person while simultaneously affirming the hero's journey through masculinity, discipline, and bloodlust. Though the first in the series, First Blood, is actually a far more nuanced telling considering the villains in the movie were themselves combat veterans of a different time. I'm expendable. It's hard to believe that Sly Stallone put out a really important war film, but I would argue that First Blood, while birthing an over-the-top and ultimately ridiculous series, was indeed an important movie, even if it contained the fatal flaw that we'll talk about later. Perhaps the most controversial film that falls under this category is the 2014 release American Sniper, starring Bradley Cooper as sniper Chris Kyle and directed by Clint Eastwood. It's important not to underestimate the impact of this film on our nationalistic culture today. Despite Eastwood's claim that it's an anti-war film, I'm not sure how he makes that claim, but despite that claim, the subject of the film became nothing short of a national hero for being the most effective sniper in the history of the military. It's an extremely controversial film on several fronts, as Kyle would both be revered on the right and reviled on the left for his characterization of Iraqis as, quote, savages, and how he enjoyed killing them. Kyle was killed at a shooting range at the height of his popularity, but he lived long enough to take in much of the controversy over his statements and the film, much of which had to do with an increasing number of people coming out of the woodwork to debunk several of his claims of heroism and actions during combat, even including his total kills. For some in the military and on the right, however, Kyle remains a hero. Forget the fact that he harbored such hatred and bloodlust to murder people in a country that we were invading. He despised the very people that we were supposedly liberating, adding to the already growing confusion over our operation and objectives in Iraq. The movie would wind up being one of the highest grossing war films of all time, pulling in $350 million worldwide so far. Only a couple of movies, including Saving Private Ryan, Pearl Harbor, and Gone with the Wind, if you want to include that as a war film, have grossed more. It's an incredible feat, and I would argue, most of those who paid to see the film likely fall into the Kyle as hero camp. So we have to take everything about the film and films like these really seriously when attempting to define the effect that these films have on our collective psyche. Now, as a quick aside, to round out the general categories of war film Hollywood loves, we have lighter, more satirical takes on war such as Stripes, MASH, Three Kings, Good Morning Vietnam, and Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. These are just a few examples of war and war-adjacent films that were extremely popular and contained kind of contradictory messages, at times glorifying war, at others the opposite, but all done with either a gentle or absurd touch that leaves the audience less conflicted about war and remembering the funny, absurd, or satirical aspects of conflict. That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! And before we move to the next section, there's one film that's really difficult to place, and that's Saving Private Ryan. As we'll talk about shortly, World War II films are easier to digest because there's historical consensus that this was the so-called just war. It checks so many boxes and makes a compelling study. By all measures, it's a blockbuster. Veterans were astounded by the realism. It portrayed the horrors endured by ordinary men drawn into an extraordinary situation that tugs on the heartstrings. Now, we know that there are no winners in this and we're saddened by what they go through, yet we're uplifted at the same time. Like much of Spielberg's work, it's somehow simultaneously unoffensive yet important, cinematic yet gritty. 
Now, some may disagree, but I find that it sits neatly, almost innocuously, in nearly every camp. An example of a masterpiece of filmmaking, even if one isn't inclined to give credit to a director that many think is incapable of producing an art film. Chapter 4. Influencer or Mirror Much of how we view Hollywood depends upon who the bad guy is. Nazis, communists, Muslims, or how real or perceived are these threats? Hollywood has tied itself in knots over the past hundred years trying to walk a fine line between being on the right side of history and making money. After all, even though Hollywood is our chief cultural export, it's a business. And that's an important part of this conversation. Most of Hollywood's money is made overseas, so when it comes to war, and when you're a country that is perpetually at war and constantly finding new bad guys, it's an even more difficult path because unhinged jingoism isn't nearly as appealing in other markets as it is here. It's one of the reasons that, save for a handful of films, the war genre doesn't perform as well as fantasy or sci-fi. You have to go back to 1957, with Bridge Over the River Kwai, in fact, to find a pure war film that wound up as the highest grossing film of the year. Hollywood, since World War II, can really be looked at as a bell curve, though the trajectory of the curve depends on your perspective. Much of this can be viewed by how we define our enemy, but also by the nation's general sentiment towards our entanglements past and present. For example, as Giglio notes, quote, The Russians were portrayed heroically in two 1943 films, The North Star and The Days of Glory, end quote. But it wouldn't take long for the nation's mood to change course on the treatment of communists, though this was obviously mired in controversy, as Hollywood found itself in the crosshairs of the U.S. government during the Red Scare and McCarthy hearings. Again, Giglio, quote, Hollywood's most obvious ideological period occurred during the Red Scare of the 1940s and 50s, when the film industry churned out a number of films like The Iron Curtain, 1948, I Married a Communist, 49, The Red Menace, 49, I Was a Communist for the FBI, 51, and Big Jim McLean, 1952, all of which sought to frighten the American public into believing that a communist takeover was imminent, end quote. But the sure bet during this period was still World War II, with Hollywood releasing nine combat films in 1949 alone, as Giglio notes, quote, including Sands of Iwo Jima, which grossed 25 million, a considerable figure at the time, end quote. Heading out of the 50s, there was an important shift in the government's influence over content of film, with the formal end of what was known as the production code. The code was established in the 30s under Postmaster General Will Hayes to, in Hayes' words, quote, set up high standards of performance for motion picture producers, considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment, end quote. It was an acknowledgement by the government of the growing influence and power of film over American culture, initially designed to ensure that, quote, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin, end quote. By the 1950s, Hollywood had found ways to skirt the code on decency grounds, though the government would wield the very ambiguous sentiment of the code to enforce anything that smacked of communist sympathy. Curiously, the code was loosened in 1959, though it still maintained a line in the sand with respect to, quote, homosexuality. 
In certain areas of society and public policy, however, Hollywood was having a positive effect on the national mindset. As Giglio again notes, quote, cry havoc and so proudly we hail identical movies on a similar subject and released the same year. Whether by accident or design, these films influenced the federal government to recognize the heroism of the women who served in World War II, end quote. But by the 1960s, the country began to enter a period of moral crisis. The clear-cut morality of World War II had disintegrated into a nebulous battle against unseen Cold War actors that somehow posed a threat to democracy. Outside of the clear and present danger of nuclear fallout, which Hollywood did in fact engage with often, war films began to wrestle with the growing disillusionment with our foreign campaigns. As Ryan and Kellner write in Camera Politica, quote, In 1971, American culture was still very much a contested terrain. It would be a mistake to assume that the appearance of films reacting against the 60s constituted a full-fledged capitulation on the part of Hollywood to an emerging conservative movement, end quote. So soon, films by a new generation of filmmakers, ones that we now know and love, freed of the shackles of the production code, were testing new grounds and painting a less-than-rosy picture of combat and the plight of veterans returning home. Films like Rolling Thunder in 1977 offered a strong reaction to what returning veterans faced with a plot of a vet returning home to find his wife was having an affair. This motif would cross over into popular music culture with the hit song, Ruby. The Vietnam movies done in the aforementioned waves are still some of the most important depictions of a country struggling with its identity. But what we started to witness was a shift in animus from soldier to bureaucrat, military to government. Many of the Vietnam-era films successfully split the government and the U.S. military into two distinct bodies, with the government responsible for our sins and soldiers as the unfortunate moral casualties. Here are two great passages from Camera Politica that speak to the transfer of blame. Quote, One major factor in the conservative triumph was the social psychology of shame that was a significant motif of American culture after the military defeat in Vietnam. That sense of loss generated resentment as well as a yearning for compensation. One aspect of the failure of liberalism is the inability of liberals to provide a redemptive and compensatory vision that would replace military representations as a source of self-esteem. Conservatives, on the other hand, managed successfully to equate self-restoration with military renewal. In American culture, film representations of military prowess seem inseparable from national self-esteem. For conservatives especially, greatness as a nation means the ability to exercise military power. In war, the strength and courage of the soldiers who represent male national prestige are tested and proven. In post-World War II cinematic representations of this ritual, proof of manhood was accompanied by a nationalistic idealism that pictured the American fighting man as a heroic liberator of oppressed people and as a defender of freedom." End quote. Nevertheless, as Giglio points out, it's difficult to measure where the intent begins, whether Hollywood is a mirror or an influencer in manifesting this cultural shift. He quotes a study, for example, that demonstrates the positive impact of all the president's men on Americans feeling toward the press, and though he couches it by saying the long-term impact, however, remains unknown. 
Likewise, Ryan and Kellner referenced the pinnacle of what we would consider classical liberal Hollywood films like All the President's Men, or quote, films articulating the perceptions of conspiracy among corporations and ruling elites, end quote. So films like uh, Network or The China Syndrome. The authors point out that, quote, victories also take their toll by generating counter-movements, and the high point of a movement can be the starting point of another in reaction to it, end quote. That's a really important point right there. They draw one of our favorite themes into the discussion now, saying that the New Right movement was, quote, given a unified philosophy through the combination of a rehabilitated classical free market economic theory, parentheses Friedman and Laffer, with the new fundamentalist evangelism of the likes of the moral majorities, Jerry Falwell, end quote. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, yo fuck Milton Friedman. So today, one of the more curious and impossible to determine chicken and egg scenarios is how the tide turned against Arabs and Muslims. Even before 9-11, the project for a new American century, Bush doctrine, etc., Hollywood was in search of a new enemy at the end of the Cold War. So movies like True Lies, The Peacemaker, The Siege, Rules of Engagement, The Sum of All Fears, and Unthinkable put the Arab and Muslim world squarely in America's crosshairs. So did these films help set the stage for an anti-Islamic rhetoric in the nation? Or was it inevitable after 9-11? It's hard to tell. But I do think it's fair to argue that the cumulative effect of movies such as these helped pave the way for a general acceptance of Islamophobia and helped create a culture of fear that manifested an almost universal support for perpetual war against an entire religion. Perhaps the most egregious example of Hollywood taking liberties during the War on Terror is the dramatization of the capture of Osama bin Laden in Zero Dark Thirty. The film has become an almost laughable meme of everything wrong with Hollywood's portrayal of American heroism in the face of pure evil, partly because it's a fictionalized account of a current event with myriad inconsistencies and composite characters. But the more detrimental aspect of the film is that it leads audiences to believe that the CIA's illegal use of torture, known as rendition, may have been responsible for unearthing bin Laden's location and leading to his capture. The emails of the rest of the Saudi group. Give me one email and I will stop this. Who's in the Saudi group? What's the target? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden, huh? This idea has been thoroughly debunked, though it's doubtful that American audiences who love that film are any the wiser. Curiously, the film lists Catherine Bigelow as a producer, and it was a huge success, grossing more than $130 million, more than three and a half times what it cost to make. Not exactly a lesson to Hollywood to not play fast and loose with the facts and our emotions. Chapter 5. The Persistent Liberal Hollywood Myth So it's pretty clear that Hollywood has, at a minimum, an ambiguous record on war with respect to how liberal its take is. Many of the war films depicting the Vietnam era can certainly be fairly characterized as anti-war, but then again, it seemed to have a minimal effect on the nation's tolerance of or propensity for it. Nevertheless, the myth of the liberal Hollywood elite persists. And I wonder why. She probably really believes what she says. I think there is a, a lot of gnashing of teeth in Hollywood and among right. other progressive elites. That is Hollywood money that is 
West Coast, West Coast and East Coast money pouring into Georgia to try to rebuild the state to make it look much more like California and New York City than Georgia. And look, Hollywood has acted almost as a megaphone for the left. Hollywood and the entertainment industry have long been a bastion of liberalism. Oh, that's right. Because conservative media fuck nuggets say so. And because so many actors and actresses are self-proclaimed liberals and have such high profiles in our culture, it's understandable why this is an easy trope to press and pursue. There's also the fact that we've acknowledged before that the movie business is indeed a business. It's a pure capitalist enterprise where even the most liberal actor finds themselves doing the work, then hopefully someday assuaging their guilt by selecting an art film or nabbing producing credits on a documentary. These efforts, when confronted by the larger depiction of war as necessary, are, dare I say, pedo twiu. It's the worst acronym ever made up, and we realize now it was a stupid thing to do. It stands for pissing in the ocean to warm it up. It's time for pedo twiu. No matter how many excellent war documentaries get made, the fact of the matter is our culture is influenced by the films that put asses in seats or eyes in front of downloads, I suppose. Plus, Americans aren't ones to dwell, and we don't like feeling badly about ourselves for too long. As Giglio writes, quote, With President Reagan's election in 1980, the film studios acknowledged a change in government attitude and in the national mood and sought to take advantage of the transformation. What were described as the comic book phase representations of the war were also political tracts and propaganda pieces that tried to blame misguided bureaucrats and impotent politicians rather than the American military for what happened in Vietnam, end quote. But Giglio also makes the point that due to lack of interest and poor box office receipts, quote, the days of the war movie are numbered. And it's true that we've officially moved past the blockbuster war film as there's really nothing to feel good about when it comes to our military engagements. Even the post-9-11 film box office receipts, with the exception of Zero Dark Thirty and American Sniper, pale in comparison to the enormous success of the comic book universe. Question remains, however, as to who is influencing whom. In the introduction to Here's Looking at You, Giglio points out that, quote, no empirical study exists to prove that merely viewing one or even several political films will affect us enough to shape our political preferences. How influential film is in developing our political character remains a matter of opinion. Government, however, can affect political behavior depending upon the amount of freedom it allows individuals and the mass media, end quote. Now, I struggle with this in my own personal journey and in trying to gauge the impact of the media that my children consume. Growing up, the most important films in my life with very deep meaning, not the shoot em up or pull my finger stuff that the inner adolescent in me still loves, were movies like Mississippi Burning, Cry Freedom, and Glory. For years, I maintained that these movies had an enormous impact on my worldview, although now I'm not so sure. And there's also something that at this point in my life, I recognize as extremely problematic, the thing that I've been hinting at repeatedly that plagues nearly all successful Hollywood films. Now, I want to set this up as it's how we're going to close out and wind down this opus with a passage from Camera Politica that knocked me out. I read the book on a recent plane trip and made this single note in the margin after reading this passage over and over. Ruthless. So here it is. Quote, Liberalism operates from within patriarchal presuppositions, which, like the similar pro-capitalist presuppositions liberals hold, 
limit the ability of liberals to see beyond the walls of the ideological prison in which they operate. Militaristic patriarchs are okay, these films seem to say, though we'd be better off with nicer ones. But in a world in which one trigger-happy fool can send everyone to happy vaporland, even nice militarist patriarchs must be seen as pathological. It is such a shift of vision whereby the most everyday assumptions of patriarchy and capitalism, especially the assumption that strong, rambunctious men are needed to lead and defend us, are relinquished forever, that lies beyond the capacity of liberals. Indeed, liberals should probably be defined as people incapable of such structural conceptualizations." End quote. Oof, I definitely found myself in that camp over many, many years, and it's really since my time in journalism and now putting together UNFTR that I've begun to see this kind of clearly. And so the big takeaway, when you look out across the 5,000 war films that Hollywood has pumped out over the last century, and nearly all the ones that we've covered today, is that with very few exceptions, they're missing the perspective of the other side. Even the great supposed anti-war films of the Vietnam era, which are as honest as any in the genre, as Giglio succinctly states, quote, there is one criticism of the Vietnam War film that they all share, namely that Hollywood focused on the American presence rather than on the Vietnamese people who endured and suffered through the war, end quote. The exceptions, by the way, are sometimes remarkable, but they're mostly notable for how painful they are to watch. Movies like Angelina Jolie's In the Land of Blood and Honey, which Giglio considers the best film ever on the Bosnian War, quote, graphically depicts a war where old wounds and personal scores are settled against innocent bystanders and not only those fighting, end quote. Or Brian De Palma's Redacted, a, quote, blistering expose of the brutal rape of a 15-year-old Iraqi girl by American soldiers, after which she and her family are murdered and their house set on fire, end quote. These exceptions might be outstanding, but in terms of impact on our consciousness and psyche, they're marginal at best. The movies that shaped me, or just fed into whatever was already inside me, were all white savior movies, every one of them. Something I didn't realize until much later in life. The successful war films that Hollywood produces, no matter how real, how brutal, or how provocative, can mostly be characterized as white military male savior films. Films that put the fighting man at the center, even if the character performs horrific acts of violence and depravity, such as those depicted in a film like Platoon, they're explained away as the horrors that occur in the fog of war. War made by bureaucrats, almost reluctantly carried out by the military, and thrust upon young soldiers seeking honor, perhaps revenge, or simply enough money to pay for college. Who did you root for in A Few Good Men? It's a question that we asked in an earlier episode. Whether you rooted for the Nicholson character or not, he is the most memorable figure. Because the heart of liberalism exposes the desire to have that character on the wall, and the rest of us as happy to not ask questions. Did Obama illegally murder countless innocent civilians in countries that we weren't at war with? Yep. Did liberals have a problem with that? Nope. So long as we didn't see it. Did conservatives have a problem with it? Yep, because we didn't flaunt it enough and do more. Remember when we asked who became the cultural icon in Wall Street? Was it Bud Fox or Gordon Gecko? Sometimes, 
films have the opposite effect of what the filmmaker intended because the dastardly characters unlock some secret part of us, and they're typically the more memorable figures. Chris Kyle came home to publicly bragged that he loved killing, quote, savages in Iraq, the civilians that we were sent there to liberate, and he was rewarded with one of the top grossing films of all time, based on his story. Despite the fact that it was full of holes, exaggerations, and disgusting brutality. Support the troops. Salute the flag. Approve the budget. See if sand can glow. Perhaps no institution is more responsible for normalizing these sentiments and celebrating a toxic culture of militarism and bravado more than liberal Hollywood, filled with all those pinko, commie, leftist elites that the right wing loves to vilify. The era of the war film might indeed be over, but it's only because it's uninteresting. No longer fertile ground for capitalist exploitation, and so long as service isn't compulsory, the liberal masses can just look the other way, while conservatives in Congress, whose own kids will likely never see combat, can just cheer them on. Final word goes to our friend, supporter, and collaborator, Kryn. Ultimately, we have to say that films are not bottles washing up on shore with messages inside. Going to the movies is not about opening the bottle and reading the message. Rather, movies are places people go to create their own meanings. And who is going to stop us from doing that? I mean, there are no viewership police. Films mean what we want them to mean. So allow me to generalize on how people think about movies, war films in particular. Audiences tend to fall into two large categories. You have the naive audience and the ironic audience. If you're now listening to Unfucking the Republic, you are almost surely in the ironic camp. And you and I can talk about, say, the end of the film Patton, where this crazy general goes off tilting at windmills. For naive audiences, Patton is about a general who may have been a little odd, but who nevertheless got the job done. Similarly, for the naive audience, The Hurt Locker is about fearless men at war. For at least, for at least that guy in the audience who tossed the question to Catherine Bigelow, and surely for most of us in the ironic audience, The Hurt Locker is indeed a critique of toxic masculinity. Most filmmakers look for ways to appeal to both audiences, and that is something we have to keep in mind if we are going to categorize a film as pro-war or anti-war. All film is propaganda. Hollywood isn't liberal. Hollywood is capitalist. Here endeth the lesson. You know, you want to be a part of it and patriotic and go out and get your licks in with the U.S. of A. And, and when you get over there, it's a totally different situation. I mean, you grow up real quick because all you're seeing is um, a lot of death. Thank you.
Some of you guys are going to look at that uniform man and you're going to remember all the films and you're going to think about the glory of other wars and think about some vague <laughs> patriotic feeling and go off and fight this turkey too. It's in the movies. That's all I want to tell you because I didn't have a choice. When I was your age, all I got was some guy standing up like that, man, and giving me a lot of bullshit, man, which I caught. I was really in good shape then, man. I, I was a captain of the football team, and I wanted to be a war hero, man. I wanted to go out and kill for my country. Once I was a lover, and I searched behind your eyes for you. And now I'm here to tell you that I have killed for my country or whatever. And I don't feel good about it. Because there's not enough reason, man. a person die in your hands or to see your best buddy get blown away through the ashes of I'm here to tell you it's a lousy thing man I don't see any reason for it and there's a lot of shit that I did over there that I find fucking hard to live with and I don't want to see people like you, man, coming back and having to face the rest of your lives with that kind of shit. It's simple as that. I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm a lot fucking smarter now than when I went. And I'm just telling you, there's a choice to be made here. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Where does Forrest Gump fall? It's a great question. Probably in that light touch satire place. I was trying to start for you. I was me asking you on mic. I'm on mic. <laughs> You're not. You're too casual. That was too that was too you talking to me. That's okay. It's post show musings. I guess. Welcome to post show musings. Hi. W- where do you think Forrest Gump falls? Dumb category. 
You don't like it? It's fine. Did you cry? No. No? I don't think so. I didn't cry either. I wept. (laughs) (laughs) I just sobbed. No, I don't know if I was in touch enough with adult love when I saw it. You have to remember when it came out. Oh, God, how old were you? (laughs) Never mind. So, before we go further into post-show musings, I do want to talk about this book, Camera Politica, for a second. So, the Giglio book was, was great, but it's very plotting. It's very direct. It's not very professorial, but it's a really good compendium of film. And it's not just about war, obviously. There's many, many more chapters. Camera Politica, though, is excellent. I read that, as I said, on the plane, and I felt I was actually I was moving through looking for the pieces about war because there's a few chapters on war that I wanted to draw from specifically. But I wound up just kind of hammering through the entire book because it touches on Hollywood and racism, Hollywood and feminism, Hollywood and the LGBT community. I mean, it it covers so many amazing bases in this really, really intelligent manner that it was, I felt like I'd just taken like a graduate course in film. It was amazing. So I highly recommend, I recommend both books if this is an interesting subject to you, but that book in particular was, was really, really just a knockout. On that note, what was this? Well, let me ask you 99, as you're listening to it and as it's unfolding, what impressions do you have? And I'm curious about the type of films that influenced you and whether or not you think that they influenced you or they just touched a part of you that already existed, like unlocked a a predisposition that you had to be maybe culturally aware or, you know, as progressive as you are, or did they help actually shape you along the way? Well, to answer the first part, it A, made me think that I've seen Next to no war movies. Interesting. I've never been interested. Mm-hmm. I don't really like to seek out things that make me sad in that type of way. Okay, but I wonder. So let's hang on that before we get into the, the movies that shaped you. I wonder if that is also a product of your age. Because, so as we said, like for the last 20 years, it has been all sci fi, fantasy, and comic book heroes. Oh, I mean, almost entirely. War films as a genre are really disappearing. I mean, I I don't really separate how many movies are just an extension. They're just different. There's a war in all of them. Right. So they're not disappearing. They're just changing. So that was part of my original supposition. So you've seen a lot of those, right? Yes. That was part of my original supposition is that we've we've taken it into this other area that also normalizes war and good versus evil and builds on all of these conceits that are kind of toxic in a way, but again, assuages our guilt toward that that feeling toward a war. Like, uh, oh, the war movie will make me sad, ergo I don't want to see it, but I will go watch an Avengers film that is entirely about building up a war. But at least it's fantasy, so I don't feel as bad about it. It's not something I'm connected to. Yeah, I mean... How many buildings, like there's videos about how many buildings they crash into and break down and how many innocent people die in that world. Right. So they're just as violent. My biggest problem with what you said was claiming Batman as a complex character, frankly. Did I say complex or dark? I think you said complex. And I'm he's the least, com- he's a sad, rich person. Oh, he's a psychopath. 
That's not that's not that complex. The Joker is more complex than Batman. Also a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dark. Not complex. I'm just I'm sick of Batman movies. I haven't seen the new one yet. It's on HBO Max. I just discovered. But I adore Nolan's trilogy. I thought you were going to say Robert Pattinson. I got excited. My God, no. What's wrong with him? He's the reason I, I haven't gone to see it yet because I just don't buy him in that role. Yeah, I can't stand it. He's the reason I wasn't going to watch it, but he's... It's it's actually pretty good. And I'm prepared to be he's surprised. He's the most broody of all of the Batman. Okay. He's so brooding. Look at him. Have you ever seen Christian Bale interviewed? Christian Bale was in Newsies. <laughs> I love Newsies. Me too. Seize the day. So let me ask you. Your films, the ones that inspired you, engaged you, maybe influenced you, or unlocked I don't know. I was trying to think of them and I really couldn't, as I've gotten older and I've sort of watched less movies, A, because of time, B, because podcasts have sort of taken the role for me, I was scratching the back of my brain to try to figure out what I used to like and watch on repeat. I don't think I have a movie that's like, this is why I'm this way, but... You know, the ones I came up with um, when I was younger. I mean, I loved Almost Famous. I know that's silly, but. That's not silly. That makes, that tracks <laughs> so <laughs> But I was closely. already like that because of just, I think, I mean, I was raised, I say thankfully, in a household that was always pretty liberal. But that was breaking convention through the prism of music, right? Yeah. To I mean, me, that was. so much a part of who you are. Yeah. But to me, it was like, oh, this is what I wish I could have been. Having, you know, I've always liked classic rock growing up. My favorite bands now are the same bands I've been listening to when I was 12. Mm -hmm. Truly. Same bands I was born listening to. So seeing that was like, oh, I mean, I could have been Penny Lane, you know. <laughs> oh, I must give away. But physically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, 100%. I have curly hair, okay? You guys can think about it. I have curly hair. So I could have been Penny Lane. That was one. My dad, <laughs> I mean, my dad definitely <laughs> let me watch kind of whatever I wanted. So it was a lot of like more fucked up shit when I was younger. Uh, a lot of John Waters stuff, like Hairspray and Crybaby were two of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. I feel like I always saw pretty diverse stuff. Um, Matilda, <laughs> oh. <laughs> smart little girl. We talked about that. We both love Matilda. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I was just talking about it yesterday, actually. Um, what, I After we it. talked about it. Uh, whenever we were talking about it, I went back and watched a, a few clips of it, uh, and I just, I just love it. Yeah. It's a great movie. It is. It's yeah. Paul Rubens. <laughs> he's a he's a detective. That's weird. Yep. It is weird. See, I, I went through. I I would say kind of a couple distinct chapters. Okay. All through high school, those those movies that I that I referenced, high school into early college was, The Power of One, Mississippi Burning, Glory, Cry Freedom, these movies absolutely wrecked me and i really still partially believe that they had a very very strong impact and influence on my on my world view particularly as it as it relates to race then i got into sort of the tarantino era because that was i mean i was a, i was still a teenager when tarantino films were coming out it was kind of mind blowing i didn't realize that he was basically just copying foreign film genres which he admits he and does. adding I mean, feet and heading feet, he has an obsession with feet. That's right. But 
you know, for years, I, I sort of got into that and I got into more like darker movies. But in terms of my formative years, those movies had a huge impact on me. So it was kind of upsetting to me as a grown up when I started reading more about it. And I think it, uh, initially it was the criticism that came out around films like The Help and The Blind Side when I think the idea of white savior movies came into our into the lexicon and really started to be written about more often uh, and popularized in mainstream media. And then I started to look back at my own experiences with it. And I was like, holy fuck, every movie that I thought was seminal to my whole existence and worldview was a white savior trope. I mean, literally every single one of them. In putting this together, it was sort of part, I wanted to relate that to my experience with looking at war movies and the nation's experience as its identity and war films and how we've sort of progressed. And I still don't have a clean answer to which is influencing which side more. If Hollywood is just taking what's happening already and profiteering, you know, what is already out there is the general sentiment and mood in the country and then profiting on that because they know they can tap into something or if they're helping to deliberately move away because they know that the profits exist in this other place. So we're going to begin to push that narrative there. And it might be a little bit of both. But to me, that was really the most compelling part about putting this, trying to put this together and work through it. I think there is something to be said about Oscar bait movies in general and if we go back to the Oscars so white, which still persists. So making a white savior movie for a crowd of people who are all white, who are going to give it awards and accolades, which will then, you know, make its box office numbers rise, et cetera, et cetera. So. And I guess that's why I landed with the just move away from the idea that Hollywood is liberal. The actors and actresses and the people working within Hollywood and living within that culture and living on that left coast and being in the quasi-artistic community may be more liberally inclined, but they're liberally inclined in the way that they are trapped in that patriarchal prison that the authors of Camera Politica were talking about. Hey, Manny Faces here. I have some quick musings, if you don't mind. And even if you do, I control the editing, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting, though, Max. The movies that shaped me as it relates to the ones that shaped you and that whole dynamic it's interesting, uh, though much less basic, uh, I'm indeed also a white guy, uh, but two interesting factors shaped my formative years as a whole. Uh, one, my dad was a sociology professor who focused on areas at the time known as urban studies, sociology of minorities, etc. So I knew what gentrification was when I was like eight. <laughs> now, second, I grew up in a highly predominantly African-American community and was heavily immersed in and influenced by the cultures and lifestyles of my friends and their families from a very early age. So, for instance, I was aware of the idea of white saviorism in film long before it was a mainstream topic. People in my circles were wondering why Michelle Pfeiffer's 1995 Dangerous Minds, dripping with stereotypical tropes, was so successful, raking in $180 million, when Edward James Olmos's highly acclaimed 1988 Stand and Deliver only brought in 14. So, in fact, these were the movies that I was watching that affected me early, offering me a worldview on race that other white folks my age were just completely unfamiliar with. And I watched movies like 1987's Hollywood Shuffle, which looked at racial stereotypes in film, or Spike Lee's 1988 School Days and John Singleton's 1991 Boys in the Hood, which both provided really profound insight into the inner workings of black culture and communities, 
Issues that my contemporaries were keenly aware of, of course, and that through all that exposure, I became quickly and intimately familiar with myself. This was probably most exemplified by watching, re-watching, even buying a companion book about Spike Lee's 1989 Do the Right Thing. So to answer that question of influencer or mirror, I think it's always a little bit of both. Uh, for me, certainly these were uh, ideas and concepts and lifestyles that I was exposed to or being accustomed to being around or, or influenced by. But then seeing the films that tackled topics and issues with such you know, visceral, compelling imagery and depictions reinforced or helped educate me or helped lead me to a more impassioned place when it comes to this stuff. And the thing about all these films is that they all possess that exact thing you called war films out for omitting. They tell the story from the other side. And as you alluded to, there can be a critique of even the best-intentioned liberals that their worldview is often still shrouded in that air of patriarchy that you mentioned, the kind that spills over into white savior movies or war movies. But also, like you point out, the real stories lie in those art house films, the documentaries, or in the cases that I mentioned, Hollywood films that are told by those who are the other side. But like you and Crin alluded to, it's ironic. Those movies don't get the push from the supposedly super ultra liberal Hollywood. And it's a shame, because there are plenty of superheroes in those films, too. Clean my room, water line. Dad, can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. What do you have to do around here? I don't have to do nothing around here except for pay the bills, put food on the table. And put clothes on your back, you understand? No, I had to pay no bills. You know, Trey, you may think I'm being hard on you right now, but I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm trying to teach you how to be responsible. It's like your little friends across the street, they don't have anybody to show them how to do that. They don't. You're gonna see how they end up, too. I'm glad you're here, Trey. You're a prince, you know that? Yeah. You the prince, I'm the king. <laughs> right now, the king says it's time for the prince to go to bed. So, get yourself together. I'll see you in the morning, okay? Man, Hollywood ain't liberal. Please stop with this. Yes, are they sellouts in a lot of ways? Is the Oscar bait type side of Hollywood, are they sellout capitalists? A hundred percent, of course. But stop equating that with liberalism. And, and just, I guess, just another argument for progressivism. Just, 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 we have to move past this and, and, the, and the patriarchal trappings of the Democratic Party slash liberal Hollywood slash coastal elite slash latte sipping bullshit that this entire party and framework has become. The right will do whatever suits them. Yes. So if a movie comes along, that's they'll say it's reinventing American cinema. They'll say that shit. Mm -hmm. You can't win. Yeah. I mean, that's why independent films exist. That's why Kirk Cameron has a production company and cranks out conservative Christian films that that rake. Fun fact, Candace Cameron just left the Hallmark Channel to go to GAC, stands for Great American Country, Ugh. because she felt it better aligned with her religion and her beliefs, yeah, which good. means that Hallmark made one movie where like a gay couple kissed and she was like, I'm out. <laughs> Amazing. So. Um, for book love this week, we have uh, Crin's books, Psychiatry and the Cinema, 
Black Magic, White Hollywood and the African-American Culture, and Jamming at the Margins, Jazz and the American Cinema. That's very cool. And obviously, I want to send a, a huge, huge note of gratitude to Crin for collaborating with us on this episode and putting in some really insightful elements. It just, again, demonstrates the power of the Unfucking Network, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of all his work and dedication to this. Uh... We have Jack Shaheen's Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People. Ernest Giglio, Here's Looking at You, Hollywood Film and Politics, the fourth edition. And Michael Ryan and Douglas Kellner's Camera Politica, The Politics of Contemporary Hollywood Film. I had one thing before we wrap up that I won't get into right now because I think a lot of people actually do know about it. And I, I thought it was a a good thing that we could have interjected into into the episode just to kind of break things up. I was going to do a tell me a story all about John Wayne. What a dick. Casey? No. The John <laughs> oh, Wayne. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Duke. Okay. What a dick. Draft Dodger. Although they try to defend him by saying he wasn't a draft dodger and then he makes all these jingoistic films then turns into just a complete fucking racist dick later in his life and is still held up by conservatives about, you know, a real man like John Wayne, the Duke, you know, we have to go back to that era. Like I just, it's like that, the same type of toxic bullshit, slow talking, I'm a, I'm a real man, fixer up kind of bullshit. It's that fucking guy, Mike Rowe. He's a great storyteller. He's really good. But now he's like aligned with Fox News and conservative media. And it's all about like the real heart and soul of the working class American and good people like John Wayne. Anyway. I mean, all white men should be executed when they turn 75. <laughs> it always goes south. Uh, you're just looking at me so coldly right now. I Okay. Um, this got dark. As always. What? No, I just. Are you talking about what's his face? Sam Elliott. Uh, he turned a corner. Yeah, he did. Even John Cleese has said annoying shit. <laughs> like I don't understand trans people, and it's like, I saw a tweet that was like, "You were making edgy comedy. You're that person now saying that your comedy was stupid." Yeah. There's just no no self awareness. Yeah. Um, one last movie. How about I just go into the shadows and stop doing the podcast when I turn 75? Well, you can Do stay. I have to be executed? You can stay because I'm not going to let you get away with saying shit like that. That's true. I will either forcefully tell you to stop or cut it out and not tell you. You'll be, you know, so old and Be none empty. the wiser. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to unfucking the republic. It'll turn into Joe Biden. Hey. Yeah, that's, that's Max in the future. Max to the future? I have a thought for how I'm going to bring the sketches back into the show. Okay. By the way. Cool. I, w I haven't been much in the mood. It's, you know, just sort of still in the grieving process a little bit. So I haven't been feeling all that funny, but I do have a way to bring it back in. So hopefully I'll be able to reintroduce that. By the way, we're going to have some more topical creams coming up, but there probably won't be one this week unless something really shitty happens and I get mad. I just crank Ooh, out. You told me words. this was happening once a month. I said maybe topical cream. No, because we have that other thing. I know, but you said this one once a month. Well, what? You see the guilty look on his face right now, and fuckers. <laughs> you lied, lied to me, and this is why all men should be executed. I'm broadening it. Just making all more work men for everybody. I'm sorry. Hashtag all men. 
Write in, by the way, and let us know if you dug topical cream. The feedback on social has been positive. Has it? Yay. We'll cover that in show notes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say the one more movie. What's that? That I think probably framed me is Annie. Oh. Yeah. The Plight of the Orphan. There's a lot there. You honestly should There's revisit a lot it there. because Daddy Warbucks is just Trump, and but like a likable Trump. The Albert Finney version, right? Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There, I'm sorry. I reject every other version. Okay. I don't care if you do it live. Yep. I don't care if you bring Jamie Foxx into it, totally Cameron understand. Diaz. Yep. I don't care for the one with Kathy Bates. I get it. And Victor Garber. I'm so afraid of you right now because you want to murder me and... I'm just... I'm a, I'm an anti-purist. Couple of decades. I know it's I know it's not the original because Broadway and you know Little Orphan Otter the comic strip whatever all this shit, mm-hmm. but there should be no other Annie because Eileen Quinn did a perfect job. That's Annie. Mm-hmm. You should revisit because a man throws a bomb through his window. Do you remember that scene? What's worse, them Where trying Grace to? Says the Bolsheviks are very upset. What's worse, them trying to remake Annie? Okay. Or that Zero Dark Thirty and American Sniper exist. Annie. <laughs> As always, unfucking the Republic. We don't have this any of this written down. Do it for memory. As always, unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny Faces. Fun fact: As an adoptee, I also have a special place in my heart for Annie. I literally just checked out. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful, omniscient, omnipotent 99. Do my punch in. Oh, it'll be from Annie. Yeah, obviously. It's a hard knock life for 99. Beautiful. Keep going with the outro, by the way. I love okay. this. Okay. The show is hosted. <laughs> um, Evil laugh. <laughs> well, I was going to really incriminate you. The show is hosted by... Try to relate it to the show and to the episode and not to, like, my fuckboy here. I wasn't going to. I was just trying to think of a shitty movie. Like a shitty war movie. The show is hosted by Forrest Gump and distributed by Jenny. Our theme music is by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Follow us on social at UNFTRpod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us on Substack at UNFTR.substack.com. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Check out our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod and buy some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. And remember, read our Substack essays. They're always free. I did it? Fuck, that's the last one. (laughs) They're always free. We'll do it again. Fuck it, we're doing it live. We'll do it live! At UNFTR.substack.com. See you later, Max. Bye. (laughs) Bye.